Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I'm your host, Christopher Havig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. Today, we are talking on a subject that we visited once before, sleep, sleep apnea, sleep studies, what can be done for people now that I hope and I pray that we are coming out of this pandemic from COVID and people and their lives can get back to normal. Talk about the different stresses that people have been experiencing, how that affects our sleep, and then a new alternative to being able to get your sleep, I guess, diagnosed, get the right type of stuff to you when you need it at home using a lot of the free market principles that we like to espouse here on Healthcare Americana. So we are talking with Dr. Joseph Cranin, a doctorpreneur, president and founder of Singular Sleep. Dr. Cranin, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. It is my pleasure to be here with you, Chris. Now, just talking a a bit uh, in the introduction and, and getting to know you a little bit better as we're looking at this episode, you're a big time advocate of the free market and especially when those principles are infused in medical care. But you've got a great story um, and I want to get to that. But first of all, what are you seeing? You know, the pandemic is number one issue on everybody's minds. What are you seeing from a sleep specialty physician as we start to tail down? Again, I, I say I hope and I pray that we're tailing down the pandemic. But what are you seeing with people and how does that affect their home life, their sleep life? What's going on? So I think globally, people are probably not sleeping as well due to the various stresses of the pandemic. At Singular Sleep, we focus on sleep apnea. So that's what I can, I can best speak to. And sure. um, I think, well, well, maybe more people have developed sleep apnea over the pandemic because of the COVID uh, uh, sleep apnea. But um, it's it's been uh, sort of a, a guilty feeling, a paradox for us at Singular Sleep because the pandemic has actually been really good for us. <laughs> Don't you so, feel weird saying that? <laughs> yeah. So I went totally virtual in 2015 and was a bit ahead of the curve. I, I thought, okay, telemedicine, this is going to be huge someday. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be an early adopter, but who could have predicted the explosion of telemedicine with the pandemic. Yeah, it really um, pushed it, pushed it forward, made it center stage. Let me ask this real quick, just as an aside. Do you do you find any faults with the word telemedicine? Um, in what sense? In the sense like it's that, different from regular medicine? Or yeah, when you file your taxes and you call your accountant, it's not teleaccounting. True. I think that the care that we give is absolutely equivalent, if not better than what happens in a brick and mortar situation. Mm-hmm. Telehealth, telemedicine, uh, telemed, these, these are all uh, terms that I think, yeah, I did speak to that. I think there's been maybe uh, something in the language to qualify this as different and limit the payment. So that's what, that's what I, I, I've heard um, that you know, an in-person consult would be say $200, but uh, the government, if you, if you code it, they give you this. Now there are specific codes for telemed. If you code it as telemed, it's going to be 
dollars. I mean, just right. this dramatic. Well, what's the difference really? Uh, in that we can get into that, but some of it is just absolutely pure insanity. I'm going to uh, tell you, Chris. So that was part of the reason I wanted to break from the traditional healthcare model. So, um, you know, related to that, one of the things that drove me crazy and made me want to drop out of uh, the system, if you will, was people would see me for sleep problems, insomnia, sleep apnea, what have you. And in order to bill the max and get paid the max or get uh, the maximum RVUs so I could get that bonus, um, I'd have to bill at a certain level. To bill at that certain level, I'd have to examine their abdomen and check their pulses in their feet, stuff that has nothing to do with why they're there. It's just, it kind of, a, it's like a bloat. It really is what it is and it gaming the system. So I think that is related to this distinction that you brought up and uh, the government and the insurance agencies working together to try to make it harder for docs to get paid. Um, yeah. and, and, and docs are, are, are always on the front line of healthcare reform. It, it seems there's still this antagonism. Oh, they're getting paid too much. Let me tell you, we're not, uh, for the amount of investment, it's almost like a guilt, in, right. There's a lot of doctors yeah. who, you know, they say, well, I don't want to use the P word. I'm like, profit is okay. It is okay to make a profit. So I always business. try. I'm a, uh, my mantra is look, I took the Hippocratic oath. I did not take the vow of poverty. And that's something that a lot of doctors have inflated together. And yeah, it's really been a net negative, I think, for where we've moved. Well, I mean, to that point, we talk a lot about that. I'm a firm believer and, you know, listeners out there will hear me say this ad nauseum, that I'm a firm believer that if a physician doesn't know the cost and the price of his or her services, they're part of the problem. And a lot of people will tell you, a lot of physicians will say, well, Chris, in order for me to provide the best care, I'm going to separate myself from the finances of it. And I'm saying those things are absolutely linked. And I don't know if you see this, you know, from your neurologist training or from, you know, the work you've been doing in sleep centers, but they're leaving out the finances that could be a major, major stressor leading to all types of medical complications down the line. If finances and the body and everything that goes into it, the environment aren't taken into account. Yes. Uh, stressors, finances, definitely a huge part of what we need to be thinking about healthcare, both for the patient and the doctor, believe it sure. or not, that might be something, but the doctor is just doing their thing and, and they're um, slowly sinking down the middle class ramp. Where are we going with this? Who really wants to go to medicine? Sometimes I'll see a provider or it's sort of like when I get a really good tradesman, like yeah. a really good painter or whatever. I'm like, who would want to do this? You can only, uh, they're so good. They're so talented, but they can only make as much money as they can work. And on a bigger level, I see these really talented surgeons. They put in 20 some odd years of, of training. And I have a different mindset now that I, I got into, uh, I like to describe it as like seeing how the sausage is made in healthcare. And I have a deeper understanding of the matrix that's happening and a lot of most docs, I don't think they do. 
And I'm just or don't looking want at them to. like, I'm so happy that you're here to take care of me or my loved one, because I don't know why anyone would do this these days, to be honest. And we really do want the best and the brightest, right? To be yep. in healthcare, taking care of us and our, our loved ones. And in my opinion, docs should be making probably double what they are, no matter what they're in. Uh, it's just, it's becoming it's that a guilt factor that comes yeah. along with it, right? It's, it's in this reimbursement type of financial system for physicians. It's a lot of guilt because there are a lot of pr- things that are priced out of people's reach. And guess what? People aren't going to complain to their insurance company that things are too expensive. They're going to complain to that doctor. And that's tough to hear that from people. And you're like, well, I don't know what else to do. You know, how else do I take care of you? And I think that you came up with a solution that fits you and fit your practice. Yes. So there were a variety of factors that led me to start singular sleep. So one of the main things was kind of rising to a relatively high level of, of clinical practice. I was the medical director of a large traditional sleep center in Michigan and feeling like I had become basically an agent of the insurance companies. So much of what my practice was, was dictated by them. And I gave you the example of doing the physical exams, but starting more and more prior authorization to get this uh, test done or this medication, or we're not going to approve this, but we'll approve that. Well, I know that that's not going to work well. Well, you have to do that and then document that it failed. And uh, it, it was very frustrating. I don't think a lot of us go to medical school to become an agent of some insurance company or CMS, uh, Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Services. So it leads to dissatisfaction. That was definitely uh, a factor for me. And then couple that with, I I ended up working at uh, an academic position at Medical University of South Carolina. They were doing a lot of telemedicine for stroke, which was okay. It definitely helps, but the neurological exam is really important. And it's hard to tell a nurse who doesn't know how to do a neurological exam, how to do some complicated pupil test from across the internet. Whereas I realized sleep medicine, telemedicine is perfect for that because I don't really need to examine anyone. It's all in the sleep study data, which we can now do at home. So that, that was the light bulb moment that, Hey, this is a great way. And also for my lifestyle, I, I think at some point we get sick of this deal we made with the devil where you always have to be on call. Someone's always got to be responsible for your patients and the hospital, right? And this is something we accept where I don't think it has to be that way. Maybe things can change where, okay, when you're junior level, you take the call, but as you get up, you know, you less or no call, but you know, I see a lot of old timers are still on call dragging their butts into the hospital at 2am. And I mean, right. Yeah. So um, I said, Hey, I can make a location independent practice where I offer the care that I think is best for the patient unconstrained by the rules of insurance. What I think is really going to help. And, you know, I'll explain the case to the patient and then it's up to them to decide what they want to do. And we're going to be totally transparent. That was a radical thing. We're going to have all of our pricing listed on the website. You can see exactly what this is going to cost you. And that is so hard to discern 
in the traditional model until you start getting the bills and the bills just keep coming, keep coming, you know? Uh, so this is a different way. And, and, and I hope it's going to be a bigger component of the way healthcare is delivered in the future. This uh, basically direct to consumer mm-hmm. is what we are cash based, transparent payment fee for service and excellent care. It's obviously something that is near and dear to my heart, near and dear to what we're doing at Freedom HealthWorks and, and Healthcare Americana. Let me ask this, because you mentioned a little bit where you know telemedicine or virtual care, as I like to call it, again, I think inserting tele in front of anything is like circa 1998-ish, you know, kind of showing how far healthcare was behind the rest of the world. When we no longer need to you know, have like in-person document signing or you actually have to go to somebody's office to do business. What are the limitations? And I know you touched upon a little bit of them from a neurological standpoint, but talking to other physicians out there practicing a wide variety of stuff, I, it kind of drives me nuts when we get a call from somebody who says, I want to have a virtual only primary care office. And to me, I'm thinking, well, that's not going to work because the virtual part is a great supplement. And it should be a great supplement to provide excellent customer service and improve access. But on the primary care side, I don't think you can ever replace that physical interaction of an actual thorough examination. So I just want to get your opinion where virtual care has its limitations. Virtual care is going to run into a hard stop when you need a physical exam. That's really the only critical rate limiting piece. You might argue that there's a special something that happens in building the patient doctor relationship that can foster better communication, uh, more information sharing. If you're in person and you're, you're with that, you can lay your hand on that person's shoulder when they're telling you about their spouse that died or something like that. And maybe that facilitates, okay, actually, you know what you, this is not grieving. This is depression. Let's treat you, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe yeah. you could argue that, but it's not, it's not clear if that really is the case. But really the rate limiting factor is the physical exam. So you're never going to be able to have a, uh, a virtual only orthopedic surgeon, right? You've got to get in there. You've got to check that yeah. ACL. There's, there's no one. I, I, I suppose you could uh, have the person go and have uh, physical therapists demonstrate the exam to you or something like that and report what they feel, you know, but it, it wouldn't work great. Um, But the good news is that the testing, the ancillary testing that we have is so good now that most of us don't really rely on the physical exam that much. It's just sort of like a cursory, take a deep breath, blah, blah, blah. Okay. We can check the boxes on our Epic uh, note. Uh, but you know, really not that many decisions are made based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, if the person's complaining of short of breath, shortness of breath, we're probably going to order a chest X-ray and not just rely on our auscultation of the chest to uh, sure. make a decision. So, you know, I, I, the, the testing is so good, but also it does drive cost up. Right. So a lot of stuff can get done virtually a lot of stuff sure. and probably even more than we think right now. No, and that's a that's a, always an interesting debate is how far can you build something from a medical practice 
and still be useful, providing the highest care, the best care that you possibly can. So your situation, um, as you mentioned, you've, you've built this work from anywhere practice. Give us a little bit of overview of exactly what that means. And, and um, as far as your lifestyle and happiness, because again, kind of what we're talking about, I think every physician is, you know, the, the, the very rare subset of the people in our country and our communities have the ability to become physicians and they should be compensated so forth. But that doesn't mean that, you know, they should be making half a million dollars a year and then just absolutely miserable and still have the same suicide rates. What you're able to do is you provide a great income, you know, for your business, for yourself, but you've mastered the lifestyle that you wanted to live as well, which is everybody's right uh, as an American citizen, right? The pursuit of happiness. Give us a little bit of background of how you achieve that. I really started with the goal in mind. I, I think if you don't have your eyes on, on the future, you, you never know where you're going to end up. So the goal was very clear. I wanted to have total control over my life, not being told to come in to some meeting at 7 a.m. where I just sit there and pretend I'm paying attention because I really have no input into the decision. It's just sort of a formality. You're like, this could, email, this could have been an email. This could have been an email. Yeah. That's big in medicine. It's <laughs> like a lot of kibitzing uh, around discussion, 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 yeah. decision by committee, uh, very ineffective way of running anything. Uh, that's why we have CEOs. So I wanted uh, total control over my practice and my lifestyle. And my vision was I wanted to be able to be making money while I was sleeping, that's actually a business. That's a definition of a business as opposed to a medical practice, which is a job, right? And from a business standpoint, you want a business, not a job. That's not a, a great model. Sure. Um, and I wanted to be able to be practicing from wherever in the world, Mexico, Europe, wherever, uh, location independent. Uh, business really important uh, to me. So we talked a little bit about before we went live about uh, ending up in Florida. So to me, it's important to try to be as close to the proverbial rational agent that's used in economics models. Mm -hmm. Which basically, if people aren't familiar with that, it's it's basically uh, economic theory is is traditionally based on what would someone do if they're making the exact best decision for themselves. And so we started the business in South Carolina, um, which people think of as a relatively inexpensive place to live. And we were living there because my parents and sister lived there and we wanted to be close. We were going to, my wife and I were going to start a family. We thought, okay, this is, this is good. Good to be close to them. Um, had what seemed like a pretty good job at the medical university there. But we uh, started this business and uh, learned a lot about business and economics and then realized, okay, South Carolina has this nasty little secret. There's a 7% flat state income tax. That's a big bite. Yes, and it is. so the rational agent in me said, hey, you could move three hours south and just give yourself a 7% raise. So that's what we did. We moved to to Florida, um, which has a lot of other advantages too, but that uh, state income tax, and that should really, I want to see more people being driven 
by things like that. Um, I think that's a lot of uh, a lot of the problems that we have today are people are not being mobile enough with their uh, careers. They think they can only live and work in New York City. That's not the case. Uh, I think we're learning me. that now, right? I mean, that's a great point. We've um, being in Indianapolis, we have a, a potentially notorious you know, reputation for having very low cost of living, which I'm thankful for. A lot of opponents will decry that as, well, we're just attracting lower paying jobs. And I'm like, the key word is jobs there, right? Like you're, you're having an employed workforce, which is great. We've had some talks kind of, this is kind of a, a tangent, but we've had some talks with some state development, um, economic development people who said, Chris, for the first time in human history, and this is directly related to your point, for the first time in the pandemic kind of scooted this forward, the workforce is going to places where they want to live which means a lot of times it's rural areas, it's the mountains, it's the rivers, it's a lot of these small towns that were dying on the vine. And then they're able to find jobs, mostly internet-based or yep. mostly kind of gig economy stuff, yep. exactly like you're talking. And so that was you know, a brilliant point you just made that people now have that ability to up and go to where they want their lifestyle to be and still have employment, gainful employment, or you know, start their own businesses or become freelancers. But I thought that was interesting and kind of piggybacks what you said there. But a lot of state economic agencies are recognizing that too. And so you see a lot of small towns marketing themselves for people such as yourself, smart people who say, well, shoot, all I need is an internet connection or even a cell phone connection to be able to work and see people and take care of people. First time ever. Yeah, you're absolutely hitting the nail on the head. And I'd like to see more doctors getting out of this mentality of, I need to be in such and such a place that has great schools. Of course, we all want great schools for our kids. But uh, give me an example. I am from the Boston area. I went to med school in Boston. Too many people who did training in Boston stay in Boston because this is what they know. And it, it is a great metro area, but it's oversaturated with doctors and it drives their value down. So they're getting paid peanuts compared to what they could be getting paid in say Indianapolis, which is a great city, but they, they have this, these blinders on like, mm -hmm. Oh, well, this is where I need to be because it's great medicine. And I want culture. I want culture. Well, when was I asked, when was the last time you went to the opera or that art museum, you know, they, they don't go, they just like in their the minds, you're going to be to, in place. Right. and they're closed off to some of these other areas of the country. They just wouldn't consider it uh flyover country or whatever. But um, that, that really happened to me when I moved from Boston to do my residency in LA. And at that time, unfortunately, I have to admit, I did think there wasn't much in between the coasts. And, but then I got an opportunity to do my sleep medicine fellowship at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. I really didn't want to go because it was in Michigan. What the hell's in Michigan? But I felt like I should, like it would be really good for my career. Hey, it's only one year. I can suck it up. I went, I had the best time of my life. It is such a cool area. And I ended up staying in Michigan for five years. Uh, and I love Michigan. And there's so much going on um, in various parts of the country that people just have to be open to and, Hey, where's the opportunity? Let's, let's go. You know, we're, that's a great thing about our country. We can just pick up and go to another state and we should be doing that more and more and searching out the opportunities. No matter what anybody tells you, you do not need a passport to cross state lines right now. 
I don't care what anybody says, right? <laughs> it's, so we get this a lot that a lot of the physicians we work with to start their direct primary care practices, to take that step to become, you know, what we call freedom docs, elevated DPC. A lot of them will say, well, I'm in this really small town. I don't think it's going to work here. I need to be more in an urban center. And we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is the, actually the opposite of what we're seeing. Paradoxical. Yeah. You know, you set up a doctor's office in a small town. You are the only doctor for miles. No competition. You Monopoly. just cornered the market. And yeah. people know you. You're gonna, no one's going to leave your practice. They're going to see you at the, the local uh, diner on Saturday mornings reading your paper. And you're going to know everybody by name. It's like the return of what people think are physicians, like the old town doctor type of a thing. It's a very romantic view, but it's actually happening. Some of the most so, successful. So, yeah, my grandfather, Joseph Cranin, who I was named after, was a, a general practitioner in rural New York. And I guess he would have been considered a direct primary care doctor because people had a problem. They saw him and they paid him cash and mm-hmm. there was no insurance. And it all worked out. In some cases, they didn't have the money at the time. So they barter. They gave him firewood or get stuff around his house. And uh, I I don't understand how we got so far away from that model, which is still thriving in in areas like dentistry, uh, which I think Mm -hmm. we could learn a lot from about how to be more free market and um, consumer centric. But I I don't know what happened with medicine. There's various explanations, technology, maybe this testing is so expensive. We need insurance to cover that. But I think we need to get back to something more where there's like uh, catastrophic insurance, like you would have for your house, right? Um, right. You're not going to use that. If your roof has a leak, you're not going to file that claim because your insurance is going to go way up, right? You're just going to pay out of pocket for it. And I, you know, I think we need to start thinking more about that instead of going in the opposite direction of let the government pay for everything. Well, what happens with that bad stuff? So there was actually, I love this study. There was a, uh, where I'm from, Massachusetts was really out ahead of this whole socialized medicine, uh, Medicare for all sort of thing. Romney care, right? Romney care. Yeah. So there was this uh, plan mass health. And if you didn't, have insurance, you could get on it. Well, what happened? A lot of kind of working people got on it, maybe stopped working or game the system to qualify and were driving economic output down. It was causing inefficiencies, which were noted by the many academics in Massachusetts. So someone came up with a brilliant study where they said, hey, uh, we're not getting the outcomes we want with this, this free care. Let's try charging nominal fees for services. We're talking like 50 cents for a doctor's visit. And if people have skin in the game, this is their theory. If people have skin in the game, they pay that 50 cents, even though it's kind of a token, psychologically, they're going to be more invested in it and they're going to take their healthcare seriously. They're going to, they're going to take their metformin. They're going to take their antihypertensives. Let's try this and see what happens. Chris, guess what happened? People just stopped going to the doctor. They had to yep. pay 50 cents and that the system now, in their minds, that was like, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm not going to pay for Yeah. And the healthcare got even worse. So that's just not the solution. No, no. And, and we see that a lot. You know, again, a lot of our experiences in the primary care, we're just starting to branch out into more of the specialty or non primary specialties. But 
you know, if a, if a client of ours says, well, I want to charge a small per visit fee, we say, no, 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 it's a terrible idea. Leave people their memberships and you want them to call you. You don't want them to wait until something's really, really bad. You get a call that says, hey, doc, I'm on my way to the ER. What should I do? You don't want that, right? You want to create that relationship because those people stick around. There's no barriers to care, whether it's financial or whatever it is. And then, you know, it kind of brings us back to the virtual aspect of it. Like form that relationship, call people, shoot people a text message. You know, yeah, it's also you your, a, uh, the doctor's time investment is going to go up if they wait till they've fallen off the cliff. Right. So oh, if, yeah. you, if you can get well, then you have upset customers too, right? Yeah. Well, why the hell am I paying you if I'm going to get sick anyway? So you're like, wait a minute, yeah. I haven't seen you in a year. <laughs> yeah. This is not, this is not going to work. So I want to, I want to uh, get some more details about singular sleep here. Once again, talking to Joseph Cranin of singular sleep. Now, doc, so give us a little bit about a day in the life and, and what kind of patients you're treating. You know, you mentioned, talked about sleep apnea a little bit earlier. What results are you seeing with people? Uh, take us through the whole thing. So the patient I had before this interview, I think nicely illustrates the benefits of our model. This was a woman who about seven years ago had had an in-lab study. She didn't really sleep. They said, eh, results were sort of inconclusive. It looked like maybe you had sleep apnea, but we couldn't really tell. Um, she didn't end up getting treated, has been kind of limping along, suffering, didn't want to go back and do one of those tests again. It was so unpleasant. Let me, let me interject. Is that one where they go to a sleep center? They spend sleep the night somewhere center. else. Yeah. So you're going, so here's the traditional system, which is still done all over the country. Uh, you go to your doc, doc, I'm snoring a lot, or I'm tired, uh, having trouble staying asleep. So you have to make that appointment. Who knows how long that's going to take a week, maybe if you're lucky doc says, okay, uh, I'm going to refer you for a sleep study because that's what we do. Uh, I don't really know anything differently. So sends a referral to a brick and mortar traditional sleep center. Uh, patient wakes weeks, waits weeks, maybe months to get in. They show up at eight, nine ish, and they were put to bed at 10. While uh, they're there, they have electrodes applied from their head, literally down to their toes, sensors all over their bodies. You might ask, well, how can you sleep with all that stuff? Well, that's a problem <laughs> if people don't sleep so well. I believe that the data we get from doing the testing at home is more valid. It's closer mm. to what's happening every night with them. So anyways, to get all these electrodes on, the lights go off at 10 and they're usually kicked out at 5, 5.30. I don't know about you, but that's not those aren't the hours I sleep. If I tried to go to sleep at 10, I'd be wide awake for about an hour and a half. And that's often happened. So that's another thing that can affect the validity. Get up and leave. They're thrashed for the day. They didn't really sleep. It's, it's a write-off day. Um, they have to wait a couple of weeks usually to get the results back. And then they have to follow up with their primary care, go see a sleep doctor to go over the results and then get treatment. And then they have to make an appointment at a durable medical equipment company go in, try masks on, get set up with the equipment that that DME has. Whatever they have is what you're going to get. And then for continuity of care, you go see the sleep doctor. Well, he's got to get the data from the DME. So you've got to get that faxed over. That often doesn't happen. And blah, it's 
totally just disjointed, chaotic, and crazy. And very Anytime. take months to get through this. Yeah. Um, so say, what do we what do we do? I hope you don't use a fax machine anymore. Anytime I hear a doctor talk about fax machines anymore, I kind of cringe, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we said, what can we do differently? Everything. So first of all, let's get rid of the pain point of, of having a gatekeeper to mm-hmm. order this test. Let's say, let's operate under the hypothesis that patients are intelligent enough to know if they might need a sleep study. Okay. If you're snoring so loud every night that your neighbors can hear you and your wife is hearing you stopping breathing once a minute, you may have sleep apnea. Okay. Let's let you order the sleep study yourself. And then let's save you the pain point of going into the sleep lab. Let's send you a kit that you can do in the comfort of your own home, which is going to have three to four sensors. So a nasal cannula, like an oxygen tube, a finger probe to monitor your oxygen levels, a belt, one belt on your chest to measure your breathing effort and the brains of the device on that belt, which records body position and all the other data. And then to go over the results and get treatment, let's allow you to do it from wherever you want by talking to me online. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not only that, let's cut out all of these different players, which cause disjointed, broken care in this space and try at least offer people total solutions under one roof. So we also have a durable medical equipment component of our company that sells and manages the equipment, which is perfect because with the machines today, we can remotely monitor people and adjust the therapy for folks over time to optimally treat their sleep apnea without them ever having to go anywhere. We can do Mm -hmm. everything from their home. Do you ever get anybody who says, well, I don't really need this because my fitness tracker or my smart mattress tells me exactly what's going on? More so the opposite. I'm here because my fitness tracker tells me my sleep efficiency and my sleep score is 65. I'm failing. I've never failed anything in my life. (laughs) Um, Occasionally, we do have someone who's dragged into the process by their spouse or significant other because of their spouse's concern, their significant other's concerns about what they're hearing at night. The person isn't really intrinsically motivated at that time. That's pretty rare, Chris, because Hmm. everything typically is in alignment with us because people are actually paying real money out of their wallet to us. So it's so different than my traditional practice where I get these people often Medicaid patients who are just like being pushed through the system. They didn't really care. They just went do be well, they used to being handed aid. off, right? Like you said, yeah, they're just like, getting, well, okay, the, my primary next. care said to see you. And then, you know, a month later I see them. So it looks like you're not using your CPAP at all. Ah, no, I'm not using that. Also, same thing. If your insurance is paying for everything or you have minimal out of pocket, it's just what's the motivation. I just, whatever. Um, when you're paying for it, you really do have skin in the game. And now we, we charge very reasonable, affordable prices. Sure. But the people that seek us out, they're motivated. They actually want to solve the problem. Sure. So many patients in healthcare are like patients with a capital P. We refer to them as like professional patients. They just keep going around, around consuming resources, but never really quite get on board with the treatment plan, never really get the issue under control. Um, I'm blessed that I don't see those people really anymore. It's so satisfying to be working with people who want to get better. It's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so occasionally we do have people who are kind of dragged into it. 
my job at that point is to try to get them from maybe the, the, the pre-contemplative stage, like, oh, yeah, maybe there is something to it, to trying to move them to action. All right, mm-hmm. like, let's do something about this. So, you know, everyone's at a different stage. Sometimes it takes people 10 years to go through the various stages of, of the, the psychology of, yes, people tell me I snore loudly and stop breathing every night to, okay, now I have high blood pressure. Hmm, I read that sleep apnea can cause that. Yeah, high blood pressure. I don't want to have that. Let me get this checked out. So everyone's on their own journey. That's what I like to say about uh, sleep apnea. Absolutely. You touched upon the economics of it. You know, when you're charging your cash prices, no insurance involvement whatsoever, how does that compare to what somebody might experience with an insurance card being thrown on the table? It really depends. A lot of people would actually come out ahead by using us and, and paying out of pocket because many, many working people who aren't being provided for by the government. So throw out Medicare, Medicaid people. Most of those people who who are driving the country by working are increasingly having high, higher deductible health plans. Right. And so these folks are, you know, in their twenties through their early sixties, they're working, they're pretty healthy generally. Mm Mm-hmm. And they might have a $6,000 deductible. If you go through the traditional system, you might actually max that out just for your sleep apnea care. With singular sleep, we can probably, with a routine case of sleep apnea, nothing too complicated, we can probably get that taken care of for you for between $1,000 and $1,200. So significant savings. Yeah. The problem is that a lot of people are still condition to think if my insurance doesn't pay for it, I'm not going to do it. I may just sit on it or keep searching to try to find a solution and go through all this hassle because they really want their insurance to pay for it because they're like, I'm paying that monthly fee. They should take care of me. Well, you know, the employers are shifting more and more costs to the patients, right? That's because healthcare is spiraling out of control. They've got to do something to manage their costs. Uh, On the other hand, there are still people who have these Cadillac insurance plans, right? And I had a woman who did the sleep study from us and did the consultation with me, but for the equipment, she decided to go through her insurance. And she told me she only paid $80 for her CPAP machine, which is amazing. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to compete with that yet. I only saw her back on my, and I know that sometimes the bills keep coming. So when I see her again and follow up and kind of curious what she says, I myself had that uh, terrible experience. I had some palpitations. Mm-hmm. I called up this uh, cardiologist office. And I said, how much for a Holter monitor? I just want to pay cash. And they said it was like $200, but they wouldn't see me without seeing the cardiologist first. And it ended up turning into like a $2,000 ordeal and the bills just kept coming. So there was like the hospital bill for showing me how to use the Holter and then the practice for billing for the interpretation and all this stuff. And Blah, blah, blah. And then the, the doctor's fee for the consultation, it, it was crazy. So you really yep. got to try to pin that down, which is exceedingly hard of what your total cost is going to be. Yeah, um, I encourage people to try to pin that down before they go through their insurance. Because you might be surprised that one of these more direct pay options could, could not only be easier for you, but could be less money. And there's always the option to apply your costs from us to your deductible, everything we do, of course, is going to be applicable there. 
the high deductible health plans usually have HSA accounts and people often use their HSAs for our products and services as well. Mm-hmm. You got it. You got it. Last question for him. Give a final word here. And I want you to look in your crystal ball and, and, you know, say like, wow, if I was emperor of the world for a day, doc, what is the perfect healthcare industry? What does that look like to you? How does it function? I was just thinking about this the other day. And I, I unfortunately, I think it's a pipe dream. Uh, I think once you start to go down that socialized medicine slope, it's hard to claw your way back to sanity. But I think what we really need is something very much like other insurance products, auto insurance, where you're paying less if you're a good driver, you pay more if you've had 10 accidents because you're being an idiot. I think people would get on board if you said, hey, if you've got diabetes because you're not taking care of yourself, not only that, but you've got bad diabetes, you should have to pay more. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think, I think that really does need to be factored in. I think that's going to be the best incentive for people to take care of their health if it's going to hurt them in the wallet. Now, what, what about the people who don't have money? Well, hopefully with our economy, if we could get healthcare under control, our economy could be just so explosive. Um, one economist family said, famously said, uh, the U.S. government is basically a healthcare company with an army. <laughs> and if you look at expenditures, the healthcare is the biggest wedge, and it's just growing with no end in sight. Um, so if you get that under control, I think the economic effect, there would be a lot few poor people, but they're never going to go away. And sometimes it's their own bad decisions uh, that cause that. Uh, sometimes it's mental illness. But what do we do with this people, these people? Well, I think we need to go back to a model of like, charitable care, we maybe need to um, give uh, groups tax breaks, um, incentives, uh, churches and whatnot, private charitable groups to uh, care for these folks. But I I think it's, that's going to be much better than just giving people free healthcare. Just, we just know human nature is, is not good with just getting free stuff. Uh, We just, there's no incentive to do anything. Right. Uh, so that would be my, you know, make it more like your, your auto insurance. You've got to have it, but you're going to pay more if you do bad things. Put a little uh, responsibility back into the market, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, Dr. Cranin, thanks for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Once again, that's Dr. Joseph Cranin, president and founder of Singular Sleep. Best way to get a hold of you, singularsleep.com? Yes, singularsleep.com or give us a call, uh, 800-757-93. Five, five, email info at singularsleep.com. And again, that's a virtual practice. So you can see patients all over the country. Yeah. Yeah. And we do have a, a nice network of direct primary care docs and functional medicine physicians who refer to us. We really would love to build those relationships. We think we have a lot to offer and we like to connect and, and work with you to help provide great sleep care to your folks without breaking the bank. That's important. Primary care specialties and surgery centers all working together. Like I said, Dr. Crane, thanks for joining us. That's going to be it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Once again, I'm your host, Christopher Habig. To check out all the cool things in direct care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin.
Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. The new administration has big plans for your health insurance, changes that can limit your choices. The Affordable Care Act created a one-size-fits-all plan. Healthcare is not a one-size-fits-all problem. The premise of the ACA is that coverage equals care. It does not. This is Eric Wilson from ISA Health Incorporated, and I recently saved a family in their 50s almost $600 per month with our free market plan. Act now. Protect yourself with a plan that cannot be canceled. This is a nationwide PPO plan, which allows you to pick your doctors and hospitals. Start saving 30 to 60% today. If you are self-employed, purchase your own health insurance, or are uninsured, you can lock in a private plan managed by you, not the government. Call me, Eric Wilson, an expert with 17 years experience at 888-448-5370. That's 888-448-5370. Or go to iSellHealth.com. That's iSellHealth.com. A free market, affordable approach to healthcare. I look forward to speaking with you. At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and x-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized by our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals, there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, green imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one-third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Interested in saving money on medical expenses? Coral is a healthcare marketplace and referral platform that helps direct primary care physicians, specialists, and medical plans find each other and work together at an affordable and transparent price. Save time and save money by utilizing the transparent direct contract model from Coral. To learn more, please visit coral.io. As a podcast listener, you know how frustrating it is when the audio is muffled or unclear. How can you have a good listening experience when you can't hear? Healthcare has been the same way. Information isn't clear, and it's hard to understand. That's why at Point Health, we're making healthcare easy to find, easy to understand, and easier to afford. And to help with your podcast experience, we're giving you a chance to win a free pair of Apple AirPods. Just visit pointhealth.com slash healthcareamericana to learn more and enter to win. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.